We're beginning our last uh, teaching in the unbreakable chain of Romans chapter 29 and 30. Oh, sprouts can be dismissed. Thank you. I wondered why these ladies were smiling, smiling at me so nicely. I just thought they were happy that I started speaking and excited. Sprouts, uh, t- two-year-olds, three-year-olds through uh, kindergarten can go with. Let's give our sprout workers a round of applause for their dedication to the spiritual nurturing of our children and all of you who participate in that ministry. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 30. Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the, glory, the, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you groan inwardly in in some sense, just say amen right now. I can relate to that. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for, as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds to the truth that lies here in these words. We uh, realize that we are entering into uh, a very ancient text, something that was written around 2,000 years ago and has been, through your uh, sovereignty, preserved for us and in some ways uh, for us in this moment uh, so that you may speak to us. We recognize as we open these books that you are speaking, and we want to hear your voice this morning. God, I ask that you remove me. Uh, I pray that I'm dissolved into the background, um, and that you simply uh, speak through me your truth. And I pray that the truth that is uh, spoken this morning will give us life, will renew us, will give us hope will give us strength, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
I want to draw your attention to that last word right there, glorified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the final culminating link in this unbreakable chain of God's saving action. God has been moving through each stage of redemption here from that eternal foreknowledge, that foreloving of you to the specific particular destiny that he predetermined would be yours. He predestined you to become like Jesus. And then to that stage where he called you, and it was this effective call that woke you up from the dead. It, it activated your faith. And then through that faith, he moves to that fourth link where you're justified. You are made right before God. And then finally, from that fourth link, moves to this fifth and final culminating link. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That word glory. Uh, common word. Maybe, maybe not. I hear the word sometimes. I'm not sure if we all always understand what we mean by glory. Uh, it, it simply comes from the Greek word doxa, which contains this, uh, this sort of idea of reflection or even thinking, reflecting back upon. Um, so think of it this way. The, the sea in the middle of the day reflects What? The sun. So if you're on a boat lost at sea, heaven forbid, you'll be blinded as the sun is being reflected all around you off of. That, that's sort of doxa right there, all right? So it's like this, this, this reflection, this, this light, this beautiful thing, and, and a reflection of it. That's glory. We were created to reflect everything that God is. So the, the love of God, the peace of God... Um, think of your own life, a life with no depression, a life with no uh, sin struggle, no constant temptation to fall into these sort of bents that we have. Uh, peace with fellow man, joy with everyone. That's the, that is God, and we were created, we were built to reflect that. Are we tracking? That's glory. We are built to sort of reflect the glory of God. Now we don't, all right? We don't very well. I mean, I know I don't reflect God's glory very well. So we are, in, in a sense, right now, we are unglorified, all right? Now, what's interesting about this word, look at it, is the tense, glorified, you English scholars, past, present, or future tense? Past tense. We learned that in third grade. <laughs> it's a past tense word. The theologian James Denny, let me read you this quote. He says this, the tense of the last word is amazing. It is the most daring anticipation of faith that the New Testament contains. What does he mean by that? It's in the aorist tense in the Greek, which is a past tense. Some have called this a prophetic past tense, meaning um, it's as good as done. So you might uh, rent a movie from Redbox, and a friend of yours says, hey, can I borrow the movie? And you're like, yeah, just return it. And they're like, done. Got that. It's already been done. And you're kind of like, well, you're still holding it in your hand. You haven't even watched it yet, but I get what you're saying. 
all right? And if you've ever done that, uh, you probably have found that humans are often untrustworthy, correct? And we end up with like a $5.60 red box bill on our credit card because they forgot it wasn't done. This is, though, why James Denny says this is one of the most daring statements in the New Testament because of what it says about the trustworthiness and the character of God. So a human done does not always mean done. With God, it does. This is, this is the creator of the universe speaking through his servant, the apostle, apostle Paul, saying your glorification the beauty, the, the, the reflection of everything that I am, a re- complete renewal of who you are, your glorification is as good as done. Now, I'm 32 years old, and I realize every year I live how unglorified I actually am. Uh, when I was a kid, I've been thinking about this lately, when I was a kid, I thought I could do anything and be whatever I wanted to be because that's what PBS told me correct? And then I got to high school and I realized that um, my dream of being like this ninja warrior president of the United States, it just wasn't going to happen. Like I couldn't do that. I wasn't as good and talented and smart and ninja-like. And, uh, but, but then in high school, I still thought I could be a professional basketball player, all right? I hadn't realized at the time that I couldn't shoot, all right? <laughs> Then I get to college, I sort of come to my senses there, and I'm like, all right, so I'm just going to like, uh, focus on other things. I, I can sing, I'm going to start a band, and I'm going to be a professional singer. We're going like, to travel the country. My wife, is, my girlfriend at the time, is going to join me. I'm going to make her into this amazing singer, and, or she already was. You guys get the picture. And then I realized I wasn't that good of a singer, and I wasn't good at helping my wife become a better singer. I just made her upset, and it was just a bad scene. So our band fizzled out, all right? We can talk about the band days another time. The band broke up, but we didn't. Amen? Um, and so then I get into my, my adult life, get married. Um, I realize after I'm married that I'm not as good of a husband as I thought I would be. It doesn't come as natural as I thought. Um, not as good of a pastor as I thought I would be, as a preacher, a speaker, a friend. Like basically everything that you think you are, the older you live, the less you realize you actually are, right? I mean, the older we live, we, the more and more we realize we're just not glorified, all right? We're not like shining like the stars. In addition to that, the suffering that we experience in the world doesn't help. We, we experience suffering all around us. I was with a woman a few years ago who was in the hospital, pain all through her body, imminent death upon her. And with tears running down her face, she said, if God loves me, why is he letting this happen? Glorification, what does it mean for her in that moment? Earthquakes, famines, ground that won't produce food, water that's undrinkable. If God loved us, then why would he let this happen? Sin issues that are constantly in our life, uh, places where our heart just seems bent and prone toward sin. You may have a friend who 
deals with same-sex attraction and says something like, if God loved me and if this was not something that I could have, then why would he let this continue? Or maybe a bent toward anger. Or a bent toward revenge. Someone has hurt you. And everything in you wants to get them back. And then you hear something like, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And you're like, but what do I do with this? The anger, the pain. We are in a world of suffering inwardly. You know that word groan, we groan? That's what it's kind of talking about. Like inwardly as well as externally, there is suffering all around us. And then we come to this word, glorified prophetic past tense, it's as good as done, all right? That's what we're dealing, we're kind of in the midst of this, we're in the tension between what is and what supposedly will be. Now this is the tension in which the Bible was written. The Bible was not written by theologians sitting in an easy chair in a desk with like a little Oriole's bobblehead on his desk and checking Facebook statuses, and then just writing ideas. So we can, we're going to be glorified someday. This is written in the midst of suffering, in, in the tension between what is and what is to come. We've already discussed this, but Rome is kind of closing down on the church here. Within another seven years or so, the writer, the Apostle Paul, is no, is no more. Like, he's gone. He's dead. He's murdered. Written in the tension of what is. And look at verse 18, that's how this all begins, this entire passage. It starts out by reflecting on what is versus what is to come. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, you Roman Christians, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have left your families. You've lost your families because of your new faith. You've lost your jobs. You're losing your properties. Things are bad for you right now. He's saying, for you Roman Christians, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. There's that word glory. What we're currently going through, he says, is incomparable to what is going to be. The glory that is going to be ours. The promise here then that we are receiving, that we have been receiving for the last five weeks of, as we've been studying this, is then that all of our suffering, our futile efforts, our struggles, the thorns in our flesh that we carry, these, these, these sufferings are, have, have been fundamentally changed in their impact. All right, they're still suffering. It's still bad. It's still something that, that we can weep and mourn over. But they've changed in their impact. In that, what he's saying is, is all of these sufferings, thorns in, in the flesh, problems in life, are now being used by God to move us on this unbreakable chain with glorification as the end. What we're moving toward, the hope of what is to come. So let's dive into it. Let's explore then what glorification is. What Paul does is after that first statement in verse 18, where he's comparing the sufferings of this world with the glory that is to come, it's almost as if he then just kind of sits back and, and he just imagines. And, he, and he's writing inspired literature here from, from God for us. 
of what uh, this glorification is and how wondrous it actually is going to be. So let's explore with me. Look at verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation or for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So creation, he's saying, is suffering. He's sort of animating creation here. He's animating the earth. And he's saying, the earth is suffering. We look around. I asked my daughters earlier this week as we were doing our times of family worship, studying this passage, and asked them how the creation is suffering. And they, they got it. Like, bad things like earthquakes and tornadoes and, you know, the, 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 the clear uh, groanings of the earth. The problem, now what happened? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God created the earth and he said about, about it, he said, it is good. Good. It is good. Now, how did it go from good to what we see today, what they saw 2,000 years ago? Like the earth is not good. Like there are problems. There's still beauty in the earth. The sunset's beautiful. But there is like something's off. Now, here it is in Genesis chapter 3. After the earth was created, man, Adam and Eve created. Adam and Eve sin, Right? They disobey the Creator. They say, we want to go our own way. We don't want to be how the Creator created us to be. We want to do our own thing. Everything changed. Now, Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve sin. Sin, the old way we say it, sin entered into the world. Now, at that moment, God then curses the ground. In Genesis chapter 3, he says, because you, Adam, because you sinned, cursed is the ground because of you. Amen. There's going to be a lot of pain, he says, in growing your food now. It's going to take a lot of sweat, a lot of hard work to survive off of this ground. You're going to deal with thorns and thistles and weeds. Bringing forth fruit will often be a failure for you. Work will often be futile. And then he says, and because you're dust, so like, Adam, I took you out of the earth. I made you out of the earth, out of dirt. And it wasn't the dirt that was to reflect God. It was who? Adam that was to reflect the glory of God. He says, I took you out of dirt. Now, to the earth, you will return. You see, we have to understand this. This is this is fundamental to our understanding of what we see around us and what God is doing. Creation has fallen because humans fell. Adam fell first, then creation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what he's saying here. He says creation is, uh, verse 19, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons. So what is creation waiting for? For us to recycle? Recycling is good. You should recycle. All right? Love for fellow man. You're loving your neighbor. Like care about the crap that you're putting into their water, okay? But creation is not eagerly waiting for us to fix it. Creation is eagerly waiting 
for the revealing of the sons of God. This moment in which we are glorified, like things are changed. Christ comes back, we're given new bodies, and the curse is reversed with man, therefore curse is also reversed with creation. Look, I am as green as the jolly green giant. I love the earth. And because of that, I love the gospel. If you love creation, then you love the gospel because the gospel is a story about the redemption of man and then therefore, as a result, the renewal of all things. That's what creation waits for. Now, uh, that key word right there is revealing. We are going to be revealed for what we actually are. Let's, let's dive into that. What does he mean by that? What, are, what is this revealing? Look at, verse, look at verse 23. Not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit of God, grown inwardly, say yes, yes. grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. So here he says at the core, we are also waiting eagerly for this glorification. Like it hasn't, <coughs> excuse me, hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for it. We're eagerly waiting for it. We're patiently, hopefully waiting for it. What are we waiting for? Two things, these two phrases. One, the adoption of sons. And two, the redemption of our bodies. I want to break these down for us. The adoption of sons. You see that right there in verse what verse is it? I'm lost. Thank you. Verse 23. That's a good way to see who's following, right, in your Bibles. See who shouts it out. Thank you, Erica. What, John? Where's John? Give Erica a church point. Where's John? Church point. Verse 23. The adoption of sons. Now, we might immediately sort of have a rebuttal and say, well, aren't we already adopted as his children? Aren't we all, like, what is this in the future tense, glorification. What does that mean? Imagine you were to adopt a child from India, and after the adoption process went through, you cannot be united with your child for, let's say, a year for whatever reason. <clears throat> now, he's your child, but he's in India, and you're here. Now, there's a future revealing which is going to take place, a future, like a fuller sort of uh, mother-son, father-son adoption process picture thing that's going to happen as they come here to live in your house. Do you see what I'm saying? And so now the, the child is now, it's, it's been revealed to the world who owns the child and, and who also owns you. You are his and he is yours. It's now been revealed to the world. So there is this sense, yes, we have already been adopted and we have been given this, the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our adoption which means like, he's not going to lose his spirit. And so he's, he's, that's, that's a guarantee. He's bringing us home. However, there is this fuller adoption that is still to come in which we are revealed to the world as the children of God. Now, at this point, we pretty much look like anyone else. Like we don't glow, all right? As dope as that would be, we don't become a Christian, say a prayer, and then all of a sudden, this glow. Oh, my goodness. Now, it would be cool. 
We could easily like unregenerate. You're not glowing, dude. You need, to, you, need, you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. But we don't glow. We don't, we're not commanded in the Bible to make ourselves look distinct in any way. This, this fundamentally changes Christianity from a lot of world religions. There's, there's no specific particular way that we are to dress. We don't have to wear a doily or we don't have to wear a tie or sandals or a robe or white shirt and brown pants or um, skinny jeans or ripped up jeans or you go on. You know, there's no specific way that we are to dress, okay? We don't, so, so we look, and this is, this is part of Christianity in the world. Like we look like everyone else, yet we are fundamentally different. There's a complete change. We're on a different road. We're on a different chain of events that's happening. We have a different future. Glorification, this adoption of sons, is the revealing. So he says, this, this is mine, and we now appear as we are. All right, so death, your, your, your body is, is removed from your soul. Glorification, new body, and it reflects the glory of God. I wonder how this adoption as sons can help you deal with loss in life. When we lose something, when, we, when, when we're suffering, something doesn't work out in the way that we thought it would. Friends, you are adopted as sons and that, that, that adoption, that full Adoption is going to take place. Now, ladies, ask this question. Why not adopt it as daughters? Somebody ask that. Let me tell you. Is it because the Apostle Paul is a sexist? So he uses the word sons here. I mean, there was the word for daughters. There is also a word for children. But he does use the word sons. And I don't want to just jump over that too quickly. Why is it that he uses the word sons? In the ancient world, sons were the inheritors of everything that the father had. So in the ancient world, females, the daughters, were seen as lesser than. They were viewed really in, in many cultures as property. What Paul is doing here is he is calling males and females in the church of God, sons, for what purpose? What's he communicating? What he's saying is this. Things are fundamentally different now. And he is clearly and radically elevating the status of the female in the church, saying you, like he's writing to the church in Rome, not just to the men's group. He's writing to everybody in the church in Rome. And what he's saying is that you all are adopted as full beneficiaries of the kingdom of God. All of the glory of God is yours. Nowhere in culture in the first century do you ever find outside of the scriptures, 
everybody referred to as sons. And so let's just pause and just contemplate the, the gospel and glorification, what, he, what it's doing here, even though it's, we have to look at it and it doesn't immediately hit us in our context, what it's doing here, it drops the barriers between, who's great, who, between who is greater than who. May, Paul says elsewhere, there's no male, there's no female, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no black, white, Indian, Asian, Hispanic. Listen, we are all adopted as inheritors of the glory, the good, beautiful grace, everything that God is, his peace, we are adopted as his children, and we are one big happy family. Amen? Amen. Now, let's keep going with this, because there's this next phrase, the adoption as sons, and then he says, the redemption of our bodies. Along with full adoption comes the redemption of our, the, the, the physical. In the first century, there was a movement called uh, Docetism. The Docetics taught that Christ was not actually physical, but he was spiritual. His resurrection was not actually physical, but it was spiritual. And, and that our, our goal is to actually remove ourselves from the physical, from our bodies, which are corrupt and bad, and to be in some kind of spiritual realm. This later became known as Gnosticism, and it's still popular today in pop culture, this idea that, ha- that, that, that our future glorification, eternity with God, is like some kind of uh, spiritual existence with harps playing, and we're floating on clouds, right? Listen, what this is saying right here is that God values your body. Like he actually, like bodies are good. We were created with bodies and he said this is good. Meaning the pleasures that we have, that we experience with having a body that we would not experience otherwise are good. Touch, um, eating food, and drinking a, a glass of wine, watch, seeing the sunset and the beauty of the ocean. You know, like, these are good things. Sin is, is when good things become supreme things, all right? So what happened in the garden is good thing, good desire for food became supreme. Sin today, good thing, touch, let's say touch, it's a good thing. But when touch becomes supreme... And we're living a life trying to get touch. When wine becomes supreme, when you name it, becomes supreme. That is sin. What God is doing is he's recreating and redeeming our bodies so that we may enjoy our bodies as they were meant to be enjoyed. And that is to, with everything, bring glory to God, draw our thanks to him for all good gifts. He's redeeming our bodies uh, Paul, as he is, is confronting the ascetics, as he's confronting this early heresy in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, and he's saying, look, the resurrection had to happen. He's giving a, a very strong defense for why it happened and how we know it happened. And then he says that if it didn't happen, like, everything is worthless. Like, our whole faith is worthless. Just forget it. And then in the middle of that, he says this. Let me read these two verses to you. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. He says, for in Adam all die. So remember, Adam, sinned, corrupt, uh, ground became corrupt. Adam, I made you out of dust, now to dust you will return. So death is our bodies separated from our souls. And so, so our souls survive death. Our bodies don't. Been to a funeral, you look at the, 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 the body laying there, the funerals I've been to, it's like I, I see the body, I see the face, and it's like, yeah, that's their, that's their casing, but they're gone. Like there's something, even, a, even a, somebody who completely just disregards everything about God has got to at least admit something changed, <laughs> all right? There, it's like something is gone. Something's different about their body. No. The soul is removed from the body. The bodies decay. The bodies go back to dust. What the hope that we have is, what glorification is, is the renewal of our bodies. The, the, the recreation of the flesh in which our souls and our bodies are united together once again. For an Adam all die, he says. So also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Who's first? Christ. Christ died and then was raised from the dead. Then he says at his coming. So at the second coming of Christ, this is the when. When Christ returns in his body onto this earth, at, this, at his coming, says those who belong to Christ. The glorification is this final step of redemption in which Jesus, at which point Jesus returns to this earth, raises the dead, reunites souls with bodies, and it doesn't matter how decayed your body is or how disease-infested it is or how mangled it is, it will be raised and it will be beautiful and we will look at it and we will say it shines like the stars, like it's magnificent. Connects souls with, with, with renewed, glorified bodies. Glorification. Now, we're still unglorified, all right? Even as this sermon winds down and we've got a picture of it. None of us are yet glowing, all right? We still have our issues and our pains. So how do, what do we do now? Like, how do we get from here to there? I want to give you two, two different thoughts right now. First is this. or Here's actually a question that some of you might ask. Where in the world is sanctification on this chain? So we're justified, as we talked about last week. It's the moment when God declares us to be right, future glorified, like we missed something in between. So sanctification is this idea that, that from the Bible that God over time, makes us more and more like Jesus. So we're made right once and for all, like God has declared us right. But then there's a process in which he slowly makes us more and more like Jesus. Where is sanctification in this? The answer is this. It's all in that word glorified. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, verse 18. Let me, let me read it to you. He says this, We all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. Everybody say, being transformed. being transformed. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So there is this sense, 
glorification future. It's going to happen when Christ returns. There's also, in some ways, a previous stage to glorification in which throughout our lives we are being transferred from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. How does a person change? You see, God didn't just simply save us and get us past hell and past condemnation, and now it's up to us to try to better ourselves and become better people in this world. Answer is this, for this comes from the Lord. In the same way that our future glorification when we're given a new body is a complete act of God, backing up, living our life, transfer from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another is also an act of God, something that he does for us that we rest in. Now, listen, when I think of my own life, all right, think of years past, um, how, like, uh, there's, there have been moments in my life where I was, like, up to my eyeballs in sin. How did I get out of it? Like, I, I didn't have inside of me what it took there have been moments of despair in my life, like a, a dark night that never seemed, it never seemed like it would end. How did the sun eventually rise? And I smiled again. This also God does for us. The, uh, when, when we think of our own lives and how God has transferred us up to the point where we are now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, how he has convicted you and changed you and transferred you from one phase of glory, one degree of glory to another, removed sin, removed addiction. As God has moved in your life and kept you, how is that possible? It's not because of our own strength. It's something that God does for us. And here's the promise that we rest in. He's going to keep on doing it. He's going to keep on doing it. Glorification is sanctification complete. Sanctification is glory begun. Now, again though, how, what does this mean for today? Like as we go back into our jobs, as we live our lives, as we deal with our children, what does this mean? What does this, this promise of glory do for us today? Because, you know, here in, in verse... Um, Verse, 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 uh, 20, uh, I should have written this down, 25, we wait for it with patience. That's the line I was looking for. We wait for it with patience. Now, we can, like, do that in a lot of different ways. We can wait for it with patience in a lazy way, just sit back and, and have sort of a defeatist, fatalistic mentality, and God's just going to do what he's going to do. We're just waiting. Or we could, we could wait for it with, with doubting. How do we wait? What does it mean? What, is, what does glorification do for us today as we live our lives? Jesus tells this story, or I'm sorry, there's a story about Jesus in which he goes to uh, the home of a, of a man throwing a dinner. And as he's there, he sort of like leans over and he whispers to the man who invited him. And he says, and I'm, I imagine he's kind of like maybe pointing around at the people that he invited. And he says, when you throw a dinner party, don't, in, don't, don't just invite your, get, uh, or your friends who can pay you back. When you throw a dinner party, when you throw a feast, invite the poor, the lame, the blind. Invite 
those who the others see as scum. Invite those who will never pay you back financially or even as far as, as, far as getting a thumbs up from your peers. And the reason then Jesus gives the, the, uh, for the strength that would allow this man to do this, Jesus says this, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Why is it that we can spend ourselves on, on, on those who will never pay us back? Endless hours serving for no thank you. How do we have the strength to love and to give? To give our hearts and our emotions and our lives and bodies away to those who could care less for your sacrifice. To parent children who will never say thank you and who may rebel one day. To move into a difficult neighborhood for the purpose of sharing Christ, to move across the world and leave your family for the purpose of sharing Christ. To sacrifice your fleshly desires in pursuit of holiness. How is it that David Brainerd, a missionary to the Indians in the 18th century, he spent his entire 20s, like his 20s, the, 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 the best time of his life, Instead of hanging out, he, he spent his entire 20s just moving into the woods and going from tribe to tribe, finding camps, endless hours, days, months, trying to take the gospel to those who had never heard it. And then at 29 years old, caught a terrible illness and spent a year in suffering, praising God the entire time, and then died. How did he have the strength to do that? How does Paul, as he's writing this, knowing in some way that Rome is closing in on him, he's already just completely walked away from his illustrious position in the Roman military, only now to become an enemy of the state. What gives him the strength to do that? How do we fight sin? How do we, how do we deny ourselves our natural bents and our desires in pursuit of holiness? and give up things that others in this world delight in so that we may see Jesus face to face. How is it that we continue to, to look to the cross, look to Christ, and, and, and sacrifice all that we are for the cause of the gospel? It is this hope that we have here. It is this hope of glorification. It is, as Jesus said to the man who was throwing the dinner party, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And as you are transferred from one degree of glory to another, as you sacrifice, as you give, as you love, what you find is now an endless, deep reservoir of strength to love and to give yourself away. There's nothing now to hang on to. And even this comes from the Lord. Even this, the strength that you, that you have to move on another day comes from the Lord. And then we rest. God doesn't, that's what we've been doing the last five weeks. We've been looking at the work 
of God. God does the work. A Christian is somebody who knows how to rest really well. We just like, we're like, I'm resting in God. I'm resting in the work that God is doing for me. This is the saving action of God on our behalf from the moment that we are rebellious against Him, running against Him, to the moment that He calls us, justifies us, and then this moment in which we are going to be glorified and it's as good as done. And all things now work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, friends, that promise is for Christians. The promise is for Christians. One theologian years past, he says, in order for, or how did he say it? In order for you, or before you enter into heaven, heaven has to enter into you. Before you enter into glory, glory has to enter into you. Now, what does that mean, and how does glory enter into us? How do we begin this glorification process? And the answer that, from, that we get from the testimony of the Scriptures is Christ. The life that He lived on your behalf, the death that He died in your place, absorbing the wrath of God because only Christ could survive God's wrath, the resurrection of the dead, and we look to Christ and we see him as enough. We, see, we, we, we hear the testimony of, of the church and the voice of God saying, in him I am well pleased. And then we rest in Christ. Friends, put your faith in Christ. Receive him as your Lord, as your master, and as your savior. And what we discover, what all of us will then discover is that these sufferings in life have been fundamentally changed in their impact. They are now moving us. God is using them to move us through this unbreakable chain. And these sufferings do not even compare to the glory that is going to be revealed. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you seal these truths in our heart. We uh, believe that uh, we are on this unbreakable chain of your saving action. And God, as you may be calling some to you right now, I pray that they receive you. I pray that they receive Christ, that they see his life and death and resurrection as enough for them and that they just simply trust in him as their savior. God, uh, with, a, with, with a, a room with this many people in it, there are uh, probably countless, uh, 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 just a countless number of sufferings. If we just started to sit down and list out all the suffering that we're going through in life as individuals. But God, we are trusting in this promise. We're trusting in the fact that all things, even our suffering, works together to refine us for our good. God, let us not forget that. Let us continue to rest in the work of Christ. Let us continue to rest in your saving action in our lives. Let us rest in your sanctification of our lives as we have issues and sins and problems 
things that need to change. Let us just rest in you. Change us, God. Change us. Move us from one degree of glory to another. And let us, with eager, hopeful patience, wait that day when Christ returns to this earth and all things will be made new. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.